Good morning. Thanks for joining this morning as we continue to make our way through the Word of God. And uh, we've been in the Gospel of Mark, which is the second gospel in your New Testament. Uh, It is um, a fast-moving gospel, as we've said, and uh, even though that may seem to be the case in terms of its overall reading, we're kind of just taking our time uh, going through it verse by verse. And uh, today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 here. Uh, And if you read with me in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14, it says, Now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Um, So after John was put into prison, now Mark doesn't explain a lot right here, but he will later in chapter 6. We also see in Matthew 14 the reason why John was thrown into prison. Uh, Herod the Great had four sons that are of note, and one of them is a man named Herod Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas uh, stole his brother's wife, his brother Philip, uh, his wife uh, Herodias, is how she's known in, in, uh, in the New Testament. Well, John the Baptist uh, condemned him for that. He spoke against it openly. In other words, he called him out for his sin. And on the one hand, Antipas was intrigued by John. Uh, no doubt he was probably offended as well, but he was intrigued by John. And, uh, and in, I believe it's Matthew, it speaks of how he sought to protect him somewhat and didn't charge him, didn't arrest him. Uh, however, and we'll see this again in Mark chapter 6, um, uh, Herodias uh, uh, puts on a celebration for Antipas's birthday, and uh, he has, uh, she has her daughter, uh, who I believe's name is Salome, dance for her, uh, dance for him. Presumably, Herodias's daughter is uh, uh, Antipas's niece, Philip's daughter, uh, and so um, she's dancing for him. He is so enamored with this dance that he. Uh, promises to give even half the kingdom if she requested it. Well, she conferred with her mother, uh, who said that she wanted the head of John the Baptist because uh, Herodias was deeply offended by John's preaching and uh, wanted to see him dead. And this was her opportunity to ultimately accomplish that. And so uh, her daughter goes back, tells Antipas, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so he's sorry that he did this. He's sorry that he made such a a foolish um, uh, statement to just allow her to ask for anything she wanted, and, but he did follow through with it, and ultimately John was beheaded during that. And so we see that in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 14, but here we're just told that he's put into prison. And it's when he's put into prison that, uh, or after he's put into prison, that Jesus came to Galilee. Now, Jesus' ministry can be divided into different segments uh, periods of time or areas that he ministered in. One of those is the Galilean ministry, and this is up in the northern part of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, as it's variously called. And um, so he is up there in this area now, beginning to minister. Uh, the Judean ministry is another uh, uh, significant portion of Jesus' ministry as well. Um, we'll uh, speak to that as we continue through the gospel. But here, Jesus goes up toward the region of Galilee, and he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, now the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, first and foremost. Uh, In John's gospel, among this breathtaking opening chapter where he speaks about the word, and the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and he goes on to give this this wonderful, breathtaking view of who he's writing about, Jesus the Messiah. 
but not just a human being, but somebody comes even from beyond in eternity. Well, in the course of unfolding that opening, he begins to speak about, uh, John does, uh, John the Gospel writer, not John the Baptist, uh, but he begins to speak about how Jesus came first to his own. Okay, well, that speaks of his own people. He came first to the lost sheep of the, of the house of Israel, as he would say in his ministry. Uh, first and foremost, he came to his own people to present himself as their Messiah. That happens specifically, though it had been sort of um, building throughout his ministry, it ultimately happens that he declares himself, presents himself as the Messiah on Palm Sunday, uh, which leads to his immediate embracing by the people of Israel, uh, but uh, never accepted by the leaders of Israel, but uh, accepted by the people of Israel. And then ultimately, he is later then, uh, at the end of that week, crucified, and then he rises from the dead. And so, but he comes first to his people, Israel. Before he's the savior of the world per se, he is first coming to offer himself as the savior and the Messiah of Israel. And so he begins to declare this gospel of the kingdom, this good news that the kingdom has come, it's arrived. It's time to recognize that, that this, this, this thing that you've been waiting for for your entire history is now coming upon you. And um, this was, by the way, to flip the other side of the coin, this was the expectation of the people of Israel in regard to their Messiah when he came. Uh, they were expecting one to ultimately restore the kingdom, to bring back Israel's place of prominence. As a matter of fact, even the apostles themselves, when Jesus is about to ascend into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, um, he uh, is talking to them. And in the midst of that discussion, the disciples ask, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, but wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. There is still more to come in terms of God's unfolding plan to reach mankind before the kingdom is ultimately established. Um, and of course, the question comes up, if, if Israel had accepted her Messiah, would the kingdom have been established then? Well, I mean, it's easy to say, well, yeah, but on the other hand, there is still the question of sin. And so that would still have had to have been dealt with. And that was the primary reason why Jesus came into the world was to ultimately pay for the sins of mankind. And so, uh, so in, in other words, in the mind of God, none of these things were shot off, you know, off track or there was no plan B in play. God, of course, known to him or all of his works from all eternity, as the scriptures tell us. We understand that God is sovereign over all things. None of these things just sort of went off uh, of, of plan at any point. Um, and so that being said, Jesus comes and begins to declare to his people that the kingdom is come. And so, of course, knowing that he will ultimately be rejected. We know this because throughout his ministry, he would speak of his coming crucifixion, how he would die according to the scriptures, as Paul would say. This is the gospel, how Jesus died according to the scriptures, was buried on the third day, rose again according to the scriptures, Acts 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And so... Um, he knows all this as he's going to his ministry. Nevertheless, he does things in such a way as to ultimately let the people know that he has come for them as their Messiah. And then he leaves it to them whether they will accept him or not. But of course, he understands and knows full well the outcome of that. Um, this expectation of Messiah to, uh, to, to bring back to Israel its kingdom, to restore and to set up uh, from Jerusalem this, this place of prominence in the world, um, there are elements of that expectation that later on, just to uh, throw something uh, regarding prophecy into this, when the, when the Antichrist comes, he will appeal to certain elements of that 
uh, in presumably allowing them to rebuild their temple. This will be a, a seminal moment in Israel's uh, modern day history when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with them as we see in Daniel chapter nine. And, uh, and, and they sign this treaty and presumably because it goes on to describe uh, elements of worship in the temple in that. Um, and then of course, Paul in Second Thessalonians uh, in chapter two additionally speaks of the fact that there will be a temple that the Antichrist will go into and declare himself to be God. Uh, in order for Israel to accept him and receive him uh, as, as the Messiah, that is likely the, the vehicle by which he will enamor himself to them. Of course, he'll break that peace treaty, or that treaty with them midway through. But uh, you can uh, refer to the prophecy series we did on that uh, previously. I'll get back to the Gospel of Mark here. But just to connect that, uh, Messiah, the expectation of Messiah was one of, of, of bringing physical, uh, military, political deliverance and establishing a kingdom and re uh, reasserting uh, Israel's prominence. Well, Jesus didn't do that during, during his earthly ministry. Um, if they had accepted him, you could sort of imagine that that may have begun to unfold. Again, there's still the sin question. So I guess in a hypothetical sense, it would have been interesting to see how that would have played out. But that being said, he did not ultimately establish the kingdom in his first coming. That will happen during his second coming. Um, now, um, uh, by the way, I, I should mention too that the kingdom will be established uh, after the second coming of Christ. Uh, we read about the millennial kingdom that is established, that thousand year <clears throat> millennial reign in Revelation chapter 20. And I'll encourage you to turn with me to Revelation 21 for one second, just to kind of finish on, on, on this element. In Revelation 21, <clears throat> for those of you who are maybe new to the scripture in that, Revelation, you probably know this, but just in case, it's the last book of your Bible, right before the accordion, the concordance. It's a bad old dumb joke, and I never resist those. But anyway, so in Revelation chapter 21, there is the uh, God creates a new heavens and a new earth. And in the midst of this <clears throat> breathtaking uh, work of God, we see a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 9 of, of Revelation 21, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me, John, John the apostle, that is, um, and, uh, and saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, this is a reference to the church, by the way. Uh, Israel in the Old Testament is known as the sadly, as the adulterous bride of Jehovah, the one who is consistently unfaithful. Uh, the book of Hosea portrays this in, in, uh, in, a, in an allegorical fashion. Um, but when we talk about the bride of Christ, we're talking about the church, those who have come by faith, by God's grace. And so we're speaking here of the Lamb's uh, bride, which is the church. In verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, uh, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates <clears throat> and the 12 angels at the gates and the names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Significant. <clears throat> three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three gates on the west. And now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the, uh, the 12 foundations were written names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city and its gates and its wall, and he goes on to describe the New Jerusalem in more detail. Um, it is significant that the 12 gates into this New Jerusalem 
uh, are the 12 are written on them are the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because ultimately entrance into this grand new thing that God has reestablished, this ultimate fulfilling of the promises of the coming kingdom, all those things that were written of in uh, you know, the expectations, I should say, that were stoked by passages like Isaiah 60 through 66, Zechariah 12 through 14, places like this where there is this, again, stoking of the fires of passion to see the kingdom restored in that. Well, ultimately, it finds its fullest expression at the very consummation of all things. And so here in this new Jerusalem, there is this picture of this fulfillment of these promises ultimately. And the, uh, the, the names on the gates are significantly, again, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Why? Because ultimately salvation is of the Jews, as the Bible tells us. Uh, it is through them that God brought the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of Israel, but the Savior of the world. But the Savior came through Israel. He is the fulfillment of the promises made to these 12 tribes, something with anticipation that they looked forward to, ultimately rejected him when he came the first time. But again, as it says in Zechariah, as he uh, returns to the earth, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they'll mourn as one for uh, an only son. And, and Paul goes on uh, later on in Romans and says that all of Israel will be saved. Ultimately, there is uh, this fulfilling of God's faithfulness and his promises that he makes to them. And we see that in its ultimate final expression here in this, uh, in this new Jerusalem. Now, interestingly as well, the foundations for this city are, uh, on, on those foundations are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In other words, those who brought the gospel, that gospel of the fulfillment of all that God had promised, ultimately in the person of Christ. And so together, these two groups form, um, um, sort of are, are brought together in this, uh, in this overall scope of what is, being, uh, what is being pictured here. And so the, the idea of the kingdom, though, is something that is very Jewish and Israel, uh, ethnically Israel-focused. And so Jesus now is coming and saying that the kingdom uh, is here. As a matter of fact, he goes on in verse 15, as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, John's message was right. Messiah has come, uh, and here, here I am, and the time of the kingdom is upon you. And of course, all that is left then is for them to receive him. They don't, as we said, and so on plays, uh, unfolds the, the rest of the playing out of the gospel in the cross and the resurrection. Um, but he says these things. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, change your mind. It speaks of the idea of a changing of the mind, or you could easily connect with that, a changing of heart, the idea of deciding that you are going one way, but you're changing your mind and going a different way. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's something that is intrinsic to salvation, the idea of changing your mind about something and ultimately then believing. Well, what are you changing your mind about? Well, you had, changing your mind in this context speaks of the idea of recognizing that you are a sinner and you need ultimately to change your thinking about who you are, what you are, and then in concert with that, you believe the gospel. Now remember, John, when he was baptizing, prior to being put in prison, was preaching a baptism of repentance. <clears throat> prepare the way of the, of the Lord. Prepare the way of Messiah. The King is coming. And that meant <clears throat> smooth out the... The path, make his path straight, meant getting everything out of the way so that when he comes, he has free passage, clear entrance without hindrance. 
Well, that implies that there are things in the way, that there are things that need to be recognized for what they are and put out so that the uh, so that the king can come. Well, in terms of the spiritual element of this, the ultimate picture that John was painting and that Jesus is painting here is that there needs to be this recognition that things need to be removed and changed. Okay, now you can't ultimately save yourself and hence you have part two of that, believe the gospel, okay? Repentance means you're changing your mind. Belief means you're anchoring your trust. It means that you are putting your faith in Jesus now, as, as the gospel unfolds, we understand fully that is what he is telling us that needs to happen. Well, that means we can't walk in the same way that we were and walk with the Lord. Those are two diametrically opposed ideas. Uh, Amos says in a different context, but you know, can two walk together if they're not agreed? Well, the idea of, of being in disagreement means you're really not actually walking together. That's the implication there. Well, Jesus says you need to repent, you need to change your thinking, and that ultimately results in a change of heart as you believe the gospel. So uh, it's important for us to recognize that the gospel is based on God's grace. What is our part? What do we do? Well, the only thing we do really is acknowledge that we need him and then believe, right? Paul would say in Romans 4, 5, that he who believes but does not work is still justified. So there's a difference between believing and doing, okay? Faith is not a work. Faith is an acknowledgement and an adherence to an idea that you are, are putting all your weight into. You're, you're trusting. Your hand, your, 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 the repentance part means I'm not going this way anymore, trusting in myself, doing my own thing, uh, and then wanting heaven for it. No, it's, it's, it's changing our mind about all that. And therefore, in believing the gospel, we start walking in a new direction by God's grace. And so it's repent and believe. Okay, so that being said, he says, believe the gospel, the gospel, okay? We've said before, the gospel is good news, the good news that the Messiah has come, Savior has come, Jesus Christ, Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, the idea of the anointed one of God has come, and he's come ultimately to pay for our sins. Uh, the gospel is good news because it means that we don't have to die in our sin anymore. This, the, the efforts that we put into it worthless, meaningless, as Paul would say, as the Old Testament essentially would tell us as well, that we're incapable of keeping the law. It's too much for us. It's God's standard of holiness. It's something that needs to to, to be adhered to, but it's impossible for us. That's why Jesus ultimately comes. And he, he says, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. In other words, everything it required, I fulfilled. And now you become the beneficiary as a believer of those uh, benefits that come from what he accomplished on our behalf. That is the definition of grace or an acronym for this, God's riches at Christ's expense. But you have to believe the gospel. The gospel is exclusive. Jesus said later in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And as narrow as that sounds, it's the truth. Jesus came to make sure that we knew there was a way and that he is that way. Um, and, and just so you're not turned off by the exclusivity of the gospel, remember that every single belief system in the world at some point has an exclusive claim to truth. As a matter of fact, even the Baha'i faith, which is essentially a smorgasbord of all religions, at the core says that they believe what they're saying is true and anything that would oppose that is not. In other words, if you don't believe that that view is true, then you are believing something different than what they're saying is true. 
And so every religion in the world at some point claims exclusivity. And that's important for us to understand uh, when we look at the gospel. It's a very reasonable thing for Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It forces us to ask the question, is that true or is it not true? C.S. Lewis uh, had famously described this whole idea that we should never uh, think that it's, it's, it's a right thing. We should totally dismiss this idea that Jesus was simply a good teacher. Nobody would say the kinds of things that he said and still be called a good teacher. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me being one of those things. Uh, He's either uh, a deceiver in other words, a liar, somebody who is leading people astray intentionally and therefore is, is, should be rejected outright. Or he might be crazy, might be a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say, um, that you know he thought these things were true of him, but he was crazy. And so therefore, again, he should be put out. Or the third option is simply this. If he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic and what he's saying is actually true, that he is in fact the Lord. And he should be believed with all of our hearts. And so um, that being said, when Jesus makes those claims, he then puts it to us whether or not we're going to believe them. And his call here is to repent and to believe the gospel. And so I'll leave it to you. If you're watching this today and you have never done those things, you've never recognized the error of your ways, that you are in fact a sinner in need of a savior uh, and therefore have not put your trust in the Savior himself, Jesus, who came to die for you, for your sins, uh, ultimately that you would be free and forgiven and become part of the family of God, part of the bride of Christ, as we've mentioned before. Uh, if you are that person, if that's you, that describes you, I'm going to, as I close in prayer today, uh, give you an invitation to receive him. As you're hearing the gospel unfold here, my hope is that you're not just learning some interesting tidbits and facts, but instead you are coming to recognize the truth of this gospel message and therefore repenting of your, uh, of your sins, re- recognizing that you are in fact in that unsaved condition and therefore going to put your trust in the Savior who came to die for your sins. So I'm gonna pray. I'll invite you in just a moment. I invite you to to pray with me at that point. But Father, we wanna come before you and thank you for the good news. It is good news, Father, that uh, to recognize that uh, we're a sinner is a difficult thing, to recognize that all of our efforts to try and be good enough to be saved is, uh, it's a difficult thing to hear that those efforts are worthless. But even in the Old Testament, Isaiah tells us our righteousness is like filthy rags. Uh, It accomplishes nothing. Uh, it's, it's work and it's effort and we put ourselves into it, but ultimately it doesn't accomplish the thing we think it does. Only Jesus can do that. And hence he came to ultimately not destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to satisfy its requirements, to live up to that standard. And he alone did that. And that, therefore, among other things, he is, is worthy to ultimately go to the cross and pay for our sins. And that's why death couldn't hold him down because he had no sin of his own. He only took our sins to the cross. Death couldn't hold him and he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And how we rejoice in knowing that, Father, especially those of us who know you personally, those of us who have have done as Jesus said, we've believed the gospel. But Father, there are those maybe watching today or listening that haven't done that. And so Father, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would be convicting their hearts and helping them to recognize that there's no point in waiting till tomorrow. There is no guarantee of a tomorrow. Why put it off? That which ultimately would change not only their lives here on earth, but their eternal destiny beyond. 
And so if that's you, I invite you to pray with me now to receive Jesus as your own Lord, your own Savior, to allow him to change your life from the inside out. That as Paul would say, that if you're in Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And I want to invite you to pray that this might be true for you as well. Father, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I have offended you. All of these things are my own fault and my own doing. I'm not going to blame others anymore for this. It was all me. And Father, thank you for helping me understand that my efforts to solve that problem, to clear those things away, don't amount to anything. Because now I understand that it's only Jesus who can do that. And so I put my trust in him, the one who died for my sins once and for all, and who rose from the dead victorious, having paid for them all. And I just put my trust in him now as my own Lord and my own Savior. And I pray that you would help me now, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk with you, to live a different kind of a life. Give me the strength to turn from those things that are tempting to me, those things that are sinful, those actions, those relationships, the way that I talk, the way that I think. Change these things and make them new, that I might become more and more like Jesus in the way that I live my life until the day I see you face to face. I thank you again that I'm not saved because of my works, but because of your great love and grace and mercy. Help me to live in response to that now. Thank you, Father. I praise you and bless you, and I love you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, if you did pray that, or if you just have questions about anything we've been talking about on this podcast or any of the others, uh, we in, I just, just invite you to reach out. You can uh, comment in the notes. Some of you do that on our YouTube page. You can reach out on Facebook as we post these things on our Calvary Chapel Franklin uh, Facebook page. You can go to our website, calvarychapelfranklin.com, and you can reach out by email by uh, through the contact means there. Uh, you can also email me from my own personal uh, video blog. Uh, it's called parsonspad.com. And uh, the notes for all these things, the references that, that we talked about and stuff will be in the notes below as well. And so I encourage you to open, your, open the scriptures and read some of the passages that we made reference to uh, and, and become a student of the word of God. But if you prayed that prayer, we invite you to go ahead and let us know as well, because I want to help you learn what the next steps might be in terms of your walking with Jesus. It's a great and exciting thing, but you don't know what to do necessarily right away. And so we want to help you do that including things like how to study the scriptures every day, how to spend time with other believers, to find a good, solid Bible church in your area. Of course, we always invite you to come out to ours uh, here in Franklin, but if you're not in the area, there's, there's no doubt gonna be a good church or a good fellowship of believers nearby that we can connect you with and try and figure out who that is. Uh, find somebody there that you can try out and visit and be part of a body of believers because it's good to give and receive uh, in that fellowship together. And we, we sharpen each other's iron. We learn how to walk with God together. So um, thanks for watching again today. I hope to hear from you. And I definitely hope that you'll join again as we continue through the Gospel of Mark and as we share our other podcasts devotionally, prophetically, all these different things and subjects that we try to cover. So God bless you as you go about your day. We'll see you soon.